Thank you, worship team, for leading us into his presence. You'd open to Galatians chapter 2, a small letter in the New Testament to a church in Galatia. This region at this time was filled with newer believers. It was a newer church. And Paul had some important truth for them. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. Paul's just finished his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ and how Jesus appeared to him. And he's talked a little bit about his credentials and that he is qualified to write this letter, qualified to speak based upon his encounter with Jesus. And so we're going to pick up part of this letter. Paul writes in chapter 2, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. While those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been, to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that has been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for we know it's truth. We also recognize we live in a world, Lord, we've walked hallways today, we've worked in the marketplace and the supermarkets and throughout our community, God. We recognize that not all the voices we heard spoke truth, whether it's textbooks or newscasts or the media there are other voices out there it's those voices holy spirit we ask right now you would silence i specifically pray god those voices maybe our students heard in the hallway or we heard over lunch those voices that said we're nothing unless we perform a certain way we're not cool unless we dress a certain way It's those voices especially, I pray you'd quiet, and it would be your voice we hear. It would be your voice we believe. It would be your voice that changes us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is an important message. I speak, I speak at... uh, Maybe it's a little more personal, and I'll explain that later. Uh, But it's definitely something I'm very passionate about. 
Paul talked about in chapter 1 some significant things we've looked at so far. He's talked a little bit about why he's writing because there's a perversion of the gospel. It's been distorted. He's defended his ministry credentials. Is that me? Tell me what you want me to do. Okay, I will. I can do that. Um, He's declared his testimony of his faith in Christ and how he came to Jesus on the road to Damascus. John Stott, I thought, did a good job of summarizing Paul's ministry and what it was like throughout his ministry, especially at this time. He said the bane of Paul's life and ministry was the insidious activity of false teachers. Wherever he went, they dogged his footsteps. No sooner had he planted the gospel in some locality than false teachers began to trouble the church by perverting it. Further, as we have seen, in order to discredit Paul's message, they also challenged his authority. One of the ways in which some false teachers of Paul's day tried to undermine his authority was to hint that his gospel was different from Peter's and indeed from the views of all the apostles in Jerusalem. They were trying to disrupt the unity of the apostolic circle. They were openly alleging that the apostles contradicted one another. Their game, we might say, was not robbing Peter to pay Paul, but exalting Peter in spite of Paul. Well put. Paul is still writing in chapter 2. It's autobiographical, you could say. And he moves us on in time. We see in verse 1 of chapter 2, 14 years later. Let's kind of turn the clock ahead a little bit. It's when he went up again along with two trusted members of his mission team. The question would be asked right away, first of all, why is this included? Why do we need to know after 14 years Paul went up again? One main reason, because the stakes were high. Paul went up for a reason. It was a significant reason. He recognized and realized that the stakes were high. And he goes, he says, in response, verse 2, to a revelation. A message that God had revealed to him. It certainly seems different than the revelation on the road to Damascus. Scholars debate when this took place, and that's not really fruitful discussion at this point. We don't want to miss what that revelation was. You see, nothing was threatening Paul's certainty. But there were a lot of things threatening his fruitfulness. And it's that he was very concerned about. You see, if the other apostles did not confirm Paul's message and renounce the false teachers, it would really be very hard for him to continue his ministry with new converts. All the new converts would ever wonder, who do I listen to, Peter or Paul? So it was really important that the apostles in Jerusalem confirmed Paul's message. We can understand why. It's very hard listening to two voices, thinking about which one's right. And the issue was significant. There was true unity at stake. There would be, if not corrected, two opposing parties within Christianity. In a sense, they'd almost be hostile to each other on the fundamental point of faith. And this could not happen, and Paul understood it. That's why Paul states in verse 4, their liberty was under threat. But it was because of these false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty. Notice Paul includes himself there. Which we have in Christ Jesus Look what their goal was. Maybe they understood or didn't, but in order to bring us into bondage, that's an important issue about whether a Christian walks in bondage or freedom. 
In a sense, Paul's saying, at that time I placed before them exactly what I was preaching to the non-Jews. And he talks about going in private and the importance that was. And Paul feared that his past and present ministry might be hindered or rendered of no effect by the Judaizers. And if the church leaders did not stand for the gospel of grace that he, the apostle, did, then really what would his ministry be and what would the future of it be? There's a lot at stake here. And I like the fact that Titus is mentioned. Titus, who was not compelled to be circumcised, in other words, follow the Jewish law, is almost a test case. I'm going to turn it off and just beller. The quote goes something like this. Beyond these models of reconciliation, a theology of mysticism provides some hope for common ground between, between Christianity and Islam. Both religions have within their histories examples of ecstatic union with God, which seem at odds with their own spiritual traditions, but have much in common with each other. Sound a little scary? <laughs> yeah, it should. Here's another quote. What can I say to an Islamic brother who has fed the hungry and clothed the naked? You say he hasn't a personal relationship with Christ. I would argue with that. I would say from a Christian perspective, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to Christ. You did have a personal relationship with Jesus. You just didn't know it. A little nervous? Yeah, as you should be. One more quote. It seems to me that when we listen to the Muslim mystics as they talk about Jesus and their love for Jesus, I must say it's a lot closer to New Testament Christianity than a lot of the Christians I hear. In other words, if we are looking for common ground, can we find it in mystical spirituality, even if we cannot theologically agree? Can we pray together in such a way that we both connect with God that transcends our theological differences? What he's really saying is truth doesn't matter. It's a false teaching. It's from a very popular speaker, and I only name him in case you're into his books, Tony Campalo. Very popular speaker. Not everything he said is bad, don't get me wrong, but he really missed it there. That's false teaching. And that's teaching we need to have our ears up and pay attention to. Paul was concerned, as you and I should be. But he specifically is targeting something here. It's an important issue. And we need to clarify some things. 
Because what he wants is them, his hearers in Galatia to stand firm against an enemy. And we see again the enemy in verse 4, these false brethren. What were they doing? They're spying out our liberty to hold them into bondage. It helps to define liberty because liberty is worth fighting for. We need to know what we need to fight for. Liberty essentially is freedom. It's freedom from something, and it's freedom to do something. That's liberty. These false brethren came to spy out the young believers in Galatia, their freedom. Liberty is freedom from slavery or bondage. Initially, it's freedom from sin's power, guilt, and shame, certainly as well as demonic authority. Paul's saying there's a time in my life, and I would agree as well, where I had no freedom. Had no freedom from the ulges and impulses within me. There was nothing to hold me back. And before Christ, there was nothing to hold you back. We weren't free. We were in bondage. But now that Christ has come into my life and our life, we've been awakened to his grace. He's provided a freedom from that kind of slavery to sin. This power is because of Christ in me. I love that song we sang, I am free, and, and, and the, the words in there are so true. I hope you celebrate it as he sung that. You see, Christ has brought a glorious freedom, a freedom from the curse and burden of the law, a freedom from the fear of condemnation before God, as well as from an accusing conscience. Such freedom is motivated by an unconditional love. And when the grace of Christ is fully alive within you, you find you're no longer doing something due to fear or out of guilt, but out of love. But grace and liberty is also freedom to do something. It's a freedom to enjoy all the privileges of being out from slavery. It's also a freedom of allowing others the same freedom. It's a freedom to enjoy a new kind of power through Christ. It's a freedom to be all that he wants us to be fully and freely. It's a freedom from trying to approach him based on performance. God's not stamping out cookie-cutter believers. We're all wonderfully different. We're free to make choices, free to know his will, freedom to walk in it and obey him. And we need to emphasize with Paul that you're going to have to fight for freedom. Why? Because Christianity is filled with the ranks of those who compare and seek to control and manipulate people to line up with their standards. And oftentimes you'll know them because they're miserable. There's another term we need to define. It's called legalism. It's an attitude of mind or mindset. It's a mentality based on pride. It's an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. It's the manufacturing and manipulation of rules for the purpose of illegitimate control. And it could be for someone trying to earn their way to salvation or someone already in the faith who's imparted their standard of performance to reach what they would say is their level of spirituality, which is nothing less than pride. Behind all legalism is pride. Because if you can follow all the rules, if you can perform a certain way, spiritually you're supposedly mature. And that's a dangerous place to be. I wonder how many congregations whose individual grace awakenings are motivating people to live out their freedom in Christ 
And I fear the number might be fewer than we think. Let me ask you a question. Search yourself here. Are you one who exercises the joy and freedom to be a person full of life, living on tiptoe, enjoying spontaneous living? Or do you take your cues from those who are rigid, grim, and law-like in nature? Where are you at? I find it surprising anyone who's been set free would ever want to return to bondage. But what are the inroads most legalists make on a life? What are the inroads legalists make on a church? Why are they so effective? Well, one, there are those who disturb and distort by doctrinal heresy. People just embrace it and run with it. That's why we teach and preach God's word. It's true. The psalmist said in 119, I I just love it. He said, there's freedom when I run in your commands. There's freedom. God's word doesn't enslave. It brings freedom. That's why we should teach it and preach it and read it and memorize it. It brings freedom. Freedom. And I want to be really clear. A theology that rests its salvation on human performance is not good news. It's heresy. We're saved by grace, not through works, Paul said. Not of ourselves, unless any man should boast. We're saved by grace, and you need to be clear on that. It's a salvation that begins with God's love, reaching down to lost humanity, and it's carried out by Christ's death and resurrection, and it results in all praise going to God, none to us. So let's stop tolerating the heretical gospel of works. It's legalism. And those who let freedom be taken away from them not only embrace this heresy, they live under the thumb of grace killers who would seek to control and who teach a performance-based Christianity, which Paul, right here, is fighting against and fighting for freedom in Christ and approaching Christ based on grace. And Paul didn't tolerate their disagreement. He didn't submit to their legalistic demands because liberty is worth fighting for. He also wanted others to live free from the bondage of the rules and free in God's grace. And ultimately, when we realize legalism is petty, I think it's time for the church to refuse to be victim to petty people. Let me give you an example. I pastored a church that had a Christian school, and, and I coached a basketball team, and the principal of the school got us into this tournament, and, uh, and as he sat down and we kind of preparing, he said, hey, there's one thing we got to do. We got to make sure that the kid's hair isn't long. And I thought, okay, that's cool. It makes sense. You know, the boys, girls, you know, they could be fine. Okay. Um, so we get there and we're checking in and, and, and there was a, a couple of our boys who the guy came up and said, we, we got to cut your hair. It's too long. I'm like, seriously? I mean, it was on the back, probably right where mine is. I'm like, you're going to cut it up here? You know, and so, you know, my sarcastic part said in. But anyways, um, he began to hold fingers above the collar. And he said, you need to cut your hair or you're not welcome to play in this tournament. Well, I had two problems with it. <laughs> one was a big one. One is, what are you communicating to these kids? They're not welcome if they don't ascribe to the microcosm of your haircuts. The second problem I have with that is you're setting yourself up. 
is an authority of something that really doesn't matter. And that's how petty legalists can be. Is they ascribe their own standard and communicate in no uncertain terms that you can't hang with us if you don't play by our rules. That's a dangerous thing to communicate. And Paul and the other apostles had to break the Jewish believers away from this legalism. He had to break them away from making distinctions between themselves and others. Boy, teenagers, isn't that hard to do? You're surrounded by people that says you need to live a certain way, you need to look a certain way, and you need to wear certain clothes and be a certain weight, and yada, 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 yada. And if you do all those things, you're going to be cool. What a dangerous thing we're surrounded by. Paul wanted his hearers, and he wants us today to not make distinctions between others and ourselves. God loves you fully and freely. He created you the way you are. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that. Don't fight it. Paul wanted his hearers to not become religionists and that they weren't before they accepted Christ and not to walk in that way after they accepted Christ. Paul wanted to remove his hearers from discriminating against other people. He wanted his hearers to walk away from building barriers and walls for others to cross. He wanted to move them away from being separatists and divisive. He wanted to move his hearers away from being people of prejudice and bigotry. Paul had to battle for liberty, and so do we. But I love how he did. This is great. He doesn't set himself up against the other apostles. Now, he's about to oppose Peter. We'll talk about that next week. But in this particular case, his initial response here is beautiful. Because he communicates, I stand together. The apostles stand with me. We stand together in ministry and in our message. He didn't alienate himself. On the contrary, he says in verse 4. In other words, this is different. I'm talking about something different, Paul says here. In contrast to what I just mentioned. Leaders of the church did not argue with Paul. They agreed with Paul. These pillars of the church stood with him and Titus. Paul stating, I've been preaching the good news of Christ according to grace. And Peter, James, and John said, we agree. We approve of Paul's ministry. We approve of Paul's message. We stand with him. They stood unified around the gospel. They stood together proclaiming salvation by grace through faith alone was the true gospel. They stood together proclaiming that God was the person who called Paul and he calls all believers. They stood together proclaiming that Paul and all the other ministries should remember to minister to the poor. They were on the same page in ministry and message. Might we take a cue from them and stand together in our ministry and stand together in our message? When Paul and Peter especially referred to having different ministries, they were equal. He mentioned, they kind of alluded to the fact we're equal. We have different ministries. Peter's going to the circumcised. I'm going to the uncircumcised. Some of the apostles are going to the Jewish people. I'm going to the Gentiles. We're different, but we're equal. We stand united. That's how they approached this battle against legalism, is they stood together in the grace of God. And to his enemy's consternation, Paul was accepted as an equal to the apostles. 
And he received the right hand of fellowship, he says, which was really a sign of agreement and a sign of trust. It was an indication to all who were present that there was an endorsement of Paul, Barnabas, and Titus in their kingdom work. It was Paul's steadfastness in conflict that Christians owe, humanly speaking, the continuation of the full gospel of grace in subsequent human history. The issue is important today because many would claim that doctrine is not of great importance, that compromise should always be sought, and that the value of human works alongside the reality of grace should be recognized. There is a lot at stake in this issue. And you might read these ten verses and be tempted to say, there just isn't much there. But Paul was fighting for something significant, fighting against something. It was very dangerous that we face in our day. I mentioned before, this is very personal to me. I had a dear friend. I still consider him a dear friend. And he's one of those friends that you you get like two or three friends in your life that are just so tight and and you just so click with this was one such friend I, I met this friend when he called me he was another pastor and he called in a really difficult situation in his church he said I know I just met you once but I need someone to talk to he's kind of a little outside the loop of my ministry so I went and talked with him and prayed with him for several times and we began to build a friendship and the things he was facing in his church was legalism And it was really widespread. His question was, I'm having difficult serving in this environment. The people aren't responding. Matter of fact, they're adding more rules for me and my ministry, and it's suffocating the ministry, so to speak. So we talked, and he finally decided to step away from it. I agreed with him. I thought it was a wise move. This brother and I grew closer over the next two years. He was an accountability partner. He knew me really, really well. I knew him really, really well. But I noticed something starting to happen with him. We had moved to Sparta, and I would come back quite frequently and, and still meet with him, and we'd still call and kind of still ask the tough questions and, and where we're at in Scripture. And, but I noticed each conversation I was having him, I noticed a, f- a little negativity creeping in, some criticism that wasn't there before. One of the neat things about this relationship is, is he had a daughter who became a really, really good friend of my daughter. They were almost inseparable. They were like sisters. One day, my daughter received a letter from her really, really good friend, which stated simply that, I'm concerned because you're wearing jeans these days, and that you're not dressing modestly, which was far from true. Well, next time I was at my friend's and we sat and talked and I said, I'm a little concerned about some of the things being communicated here and there must be a misunderstanding that maybe we read the letter wrong or something was wrong. He says, no. He said, people are just dressing immodestly. Women need to be in long dresses below their knees and began to list this, his rules, basically. We talked at length and he began to share his thoughts upon music. Certain music was unspiritual. If you listen to a certain type of music, you were not a spiritual person. Example, country music. If you listen to country, he would have said you're not a spiritual person. 
Those are the type of things he started to share. And the sad part is this one vibrant friend who lived in great joy and freedom and spontaneity and who at one point in his ministry abhorred legalism. And he saw the suffocating effect had slid into it. To the dangerous degree he was willing to push away his good friends. And his daughter saw the cue from dad and pushed away her good friend. Why? Because we didn't perform a certain way. We didn't dress a certain way. That's legalism. Legalism is dangerous on many fronts, but when you enter into legalism, you enter into criticism. And when you enter into freedom, you enter into joy. My friend lost his joy because he slid into legalism. And it's my heartbeat and concern that you don't follow. Because I promise you, you'll lose your joy. And I promise you, you'll begin to live in negativity. And I also promise you, you'll damage your children. And these three applications are meant for us to embrace. One is keep standing firm in your freedom. Stand your ground. Refuse to be enslaved by legalism. Now right now, I guarantee in this room, there's some people who are uncomfortable saying, but Matt, if you, if you teach them they're free from the rules, that they're going to do this. And some of you are like, Matt, if, if you don't teach them to be formed like a Christian, they're going to be for, performed like the world. Some of you are thinking that right now. And I would challenge you based on Titus 2, 11 and 12, write it down, circle it, because it teaches us in this verse what it is that brings us to conformity with godliness, and it's not the rules. Let me read it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And what does this grace teach us? This is great. This grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do you realize when we stand in freedom... That's what teaches us to live a godly life. It's not the rules. It's not the performance. It's freedom. God wants you to live a godly life. Of course he does. But we have the freedom to follow Jesus, not the freedom to follow the rules. Following the rules will never bring you to a life of godliness, but into one of bondage. Keep standing firm in your freedom. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians, Paul repeats the same thing. It was for freedom... That Christ set us free. Therefore, what? Keep standing firm. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm in your freedom. Refuse to be enslaved to legalism. And the second one, stop seeking the favor of everyone. It's a stubborn habit to break. Serve God. Walk in obedience to Him. Please Him. Quit trying to please everyone, and you're going to experience real freedom. Isn't that really what we want to teach our children when they leave home? That their goal in their life is to please God, not us? But hopefully they're the same things. But ultimately we want their motivation to please God. So stop seeking the favor of your peers or of the majority. But seek the favor of God. And when you do that, you're going to enjoy freedom. And the third one's tied to the first two. Start refusing to submit to bondage. Call it what it is. You're trying to be spiritual by performance.
Start refusing to submit to bondage. Think how delightful it will be to get rid of all the anxiety that comes with the bondage to which you've submitted yourself. Walk in freedom. For it's for freedom that Christ died for you. And I would say in verse 4, like Paul did, refuse yourself to be brought into bondage once again. It's been said you can tell the effectiveness by a king's reign by the amount of dancing in the kingdom. Isn't that good? We can dance in his kingdom when we're free. Might all of us experience that freedom in increasing measure. Let's pray. Our God, it's so easy to get this life messed up. We see people around us, it's so easy to take cues from them because we see them and Maybe we feel pressure around us, a pressure to conform or pressure to do things a certain way. I want to thank you for life in the kingdom. Your kingdom is much different. It's a kingdom that's marked by freedom in you. It's a kingdom that's marked by approaching your throne, which is marked not by rules, but by grace. A grace that embraces us, even at our worst, and sets us free to follow you, to love you, and to enjoy you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room especially. Help each of us to understand how fully and completely and freely we're loved by you, not because of our performance even in spite of our performance. Help us to know you love us freely and fully. And help us to understand what it means to follow you freely. To walk in freedom. And God, help us to be alert to those who would seek to enslave us by their rules. Protect us from a performance-based Christianity that exalts man. But Lord, in humility, keep us before you, claiming only one thing, your grace, and walking in the freedom of being delivered and truly enjoying you. I guess that's my greatest prayer. Help us to enjoy you. I thank you so much, Jesus, for the power of your death and resurrection that has secured our salvation and has made it possible to live a life pleasing to you. For we recognize the greatest way we can worship is free. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.